Shall we begin? On today's episode, we have Ted Simon with his new writer's retreat in the south of France, which could possibly be your next stayover point, as well as South American border crossings and adventure aboard a KTM 500 EXC. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Best Dress Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. The crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves, so they know what you want when you're exploring the world. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system, and it's easy to switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. You've got to check out the buckles, the straps, the whole bit. www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Brian Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tack. Zoe Cano. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Ross. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Hey, I'm Carol DeBell, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Nestled in wine country in the south of France is a town that is now the new home to one of our motorcycle travel legends, Ted Simon. Surrounded with culture, wine and cheese, Ted begins his latest adventure. Ted, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio, or I should say, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. I'm really glad to be back. I I, I hear terrific things about it. Uh, An awful lot of people have... um, have let me know that they heard the first one, and, and I, I thought it was tremendous. I think you do, do a marvelous job. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you very much, Ted. I certainly appreciate that. But last time we talked, you were in California, and now you're sitting in France. Yeah, well, the thing is, of course, I, I've always had a foot in France. I, I love the country. I often wonder why I ever left it, but, um, of course, I have a a feeling for both places. So um, it's not a great surprise that I've now got back here. Uh, I really love looking out of the window at all these old stones. It, it cheers me up tremendously. I like to be connected to the past and uh, it, it gives me a warm feeling. Um, I also, of course, appreciate the European culture because I'm, you know, British and uh, it's a, uh, it's nice to be, uh, it's kind of like being home again, in a way. Well, you were in California for, what, 35 years? 
That's right. Yeah, long time. Yeah. So, so you went to California, and I, I read on your blog, one of your, your blog entries that you have on your website, it said, um, you said about you went to California in particular, not necessarily to the States, but it was California you were after. What was it about California? Yes, it was not even California. In, in fact, it was this particular part of California um, in, the, in the mountains and the streams and so on, because that's where... I stopped off on my way around the world when I was lucky enough to spend four months in a in a commune in the days when communes were really <laughs> the the cutting edge of social uh, experiment and and uh, I I just loved that part of the world and and uh, the the reason it was it was easy for me to do that was because I do a lot of traveling so I wasn't really depending on that part of the world to sustain me socially if you like i i i, I love the freedom to experiment to to build things to grow things do all the things that i like doing um and and uh, and i would uh, leave for sort of quite a long time um, almost every year to, and and re- revive my uh, connections with other parts of the world so that was easy but as uh, you know i'm getting quite old now and not doing so much uh, running around and uh, and I was beginning to feel a bit isolated there. So that's that's you know one of the main reasons why I've, I've moved. You know, usually when people talk about moving somewhere or setting up their their home and their life, they have that sort of feeling. I, I think when they look at things, they look at it as a permanent move. In other words, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna live in Denver, okay, that's it. Everything everything goes to Denver and everything happens in Denver. But is it a traveler thing or is it something unique to you that sort of has you? looking at a place as your home, but still the world and everywhere else you travel as home as well. Do you follow what I'm saying? Well, I do follow what you're saying. I don't have any idea how unique it is. I um, I do know people who lead a similar sort of life to mine. Uh, I don't know how many of us there are. Um, I, I've never really felt totally identified with any one place in the world so it's not that's not a consideration for me but um but i but i have always had a a very strong feeling for france ever since i since a kid as a kid i mean my very first the very first journey i ever made was uh, was to ride a bicycle across france and that was just after the war it was a pretty hairy thing to do actually and i was quite young but but it was a it really, really reaffirmed my love for this, and particularly the Mediterranean. I love to be around the Mediterranean. Well, I'm curious as to what sort of prompted you after 35 years to look at France. And, and here's what I'm going to, I'm just going to give you my scenario, what I picture. I picture it's a, a hot, sunny day there, and you're flipping through some magazine, and you, you happen to stop on an ad that says there's a place for sale in France at a deal. <laughs> is, is, is that anywhere close to what happened? Well, uh, no, it, it wasn't anything like so haphazard. I, I, I wanted to move to France, and I spent some time thinking about where it would be. But I used to live here, you see. I mean, that's where I lived before I moved to California, and I knew the area. So I, it, I knew it was this area that I wanted to be in. And you know, I didn't look at magazines. I looked at websites, and um, and I, I looked at a few places, and then I came over and and met a few agents and they took me around but um in fact i did stumble on this house by accident i i'd seen a picture of it somewhere in in one of those uh, online 
agency things and um, and I remembered the name of the of the village you know this is an area where there are a lot of little villages all scattered around among the vineyards and I remembered the name of the village Aspiran which is a rather unusual name and um, and I happened to be in Aspiran and I and, and I had a I had this picture on my on my um, computer and I went to the the baker and uh, and there were some people hanging around there and I said, "Have you seen this house?" And nobody recognised it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and I walked round the corner and there it was. <laughs> and uh, and the people who owned it were in it and they wanted to sell it and they gave me a good price and I because um, they were desperate to move to another place not far away. And uh, and I looked inside and it had all these rooms. It was amazing because uh, that's exactly what I wanted. I wanted a house with a lot of bedrooms because of this thing that I hope we're going to talk about later. And uh, <laughs> and so um, it all fell into place just like that. And, I, I, you know, that's always been the case for me. Everything that I've bought uh, and moved into, it's always been... It's always kind of laid itself out on a plate for me in a, in a way. I've always felt very, um, very lucky in that respect. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. It, it makes you wonder whether it's your approach or whether you're just a lucky person. I, I have no idea. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you said you already mentioned there you want looking for a place with a lot of rooms. What was your idea with this? Well, the thing is, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't like to think about death and mortality and all that, all that stuff. And I, I don't have a feeling um, like I'm coasting to the finish, but I probably am. And, and I, and I'm, I was, I've been thinking about, well, what should I do with my, with my time now? And, um, and uh, people are good enough to think of me as um, as having the hang of the business of writing and I my my foundation is devoted really to trying to persuade people to to write good stuff about their trips so that um, so that we get to hear a bit more of the truth of what's going on in the world and uh, and I thought well if I had a house that that could accommodate people rather than just me um, I could maybe entice them to come and uh, spend some time in one of my rooms trying to make some kind of sense out of their travels and maybe I could help them to uh, get the book to be to, to, to be manageable to be publishable and um, you know that that's, that's the idea. Just give me something to do in my dotage. I guess that's sort of, you know, you were saying you felt a little bit isolated in California. This sort of reverses that. It puts you in, I guess it's different in France too, isn't it? I mean, the whole culture there is different. Were you were somewhat remote in California? Yes, very. Yes, it was very remote. Right, so now I you're mean, in a town. Yeah, I'm in a small village, but I'm close to other villages and, and I'm fairly close to quite a big city and a very beautiful city. Um, with universities in it, so that makes it very lively. A lot of young people, and uh, and and you know, there's stuff going on in the cafe around the corner almost every night, and there's uh, good food, good restaurants, and there's lots of lovely wine. Everything is really set up to um, to enjoy life. So you know, I don't have to do it all for myself. 
in California, you've, where, where I was, you pretty much have to make everything happen. If, if you want something to happen, you have to make it happen. And here it's um, different. And the cheese, of course. I read about, you know, you're enjoying the, the local cheese. <laughs> yes, I got too much of it in the fridge. I'm, I'm afraid of it now. I'm beginning, beginning, beginning to get scared. <laughs> I always picture South, and you are in South of France, right? Yes. Yeah, I always picture it as being this um, sort of a romantic place, you know, where it's uh, where the weather is always nice and the people are always happy and, and people walk from one neighbor to another. Is it still like that or is it like that? Well, it would be if the weather wasn't changing. <laughs> I don't think anybody can take the weather for granted anymore anywhere. And, and no, I think it's going to worse. But, but, but as a rule, uh, and, and traditionally, yes, the weather is very good. Um, we've had a couple of days of rain, but, uh, but usually there's sun. I would say like 70% of the time in, in the winter there's sun. And in the summer there's a lot of it. And uh, there's a beach not very far away, the Mediterranean, and there's mountains, and there are lots of old, wonderful old castles and historical places um, sprinkled around everywhere. And and, and the, the landscape's pretty dramatic, too. I mean, there's a lot of very interesting stuff here. So, you know, uh, it's uh, it's the old and the new, a perfect kind of mixture of it, really. I, it's, a, it's a wonderful place to be. It's why people have been coming here for holidays forever. And you must speak French. Um, yes, I do speak French. Yes. Mm. No, that's got to make it easier. You, you, I read on your one of your blog entries there problems with them. getting your bike license. Did you manage to sort that out? Oh, I had another go at it this morning. <laughs> it's not. A, it's uh, what's the, the deal? One thing about, well, the one thing about France is is that they have a very particular kind of bureaucracy. You know, I mean, nobody likes bureaucracy anywhere. But if you think about it, bureaucracies have a very special kind of uh, national flavor. They're quite, the, the, the British and the, and the American and the French and the German, they're all very different. Here, they love paper. And they have, and everything depends on you having a dossier. You have to have, you have to have everything in place all stapled together and all looking beautiful in, in lovely. It, it's, it's like that. And, and they're always finding new pieces of paper that you need to get in order, in order, to, <laughs> in order to achieve the, the result. I've, I've just been writing a piece about it uh, because it seems to me it's like a kind of a love affair that you, you have with this bureaucracy. They, 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 uh, they don't, uh, they, you know, they're quite nice. They're not offensive as they used to be sort of 50 years ago, but they always want you to come back. And and, <laughs> and and spend another hour with them. You know, it's it's really amazing. But I mean, you're just licensing a bike. It's not like it's a big deal. You're just transferring a bike over. It seems simple. Well, that's right. Yes, you'd think so, wouldn't you? Um, I was very close to to clinching the deal, and then this woman said, "Oh, but where's where's the fiscal?" And I said, "What what's that? I don't know why." She said, "Well, you have to you have to pay to have it imported." Which actually turns out not to be true at all. I found out this morning by going to another office where they say no, it's less than six, it's more than six months old, and so on. You don't have to pay anything, but but they're going to give me a piece of paper that I can take back to this other place, <laughs> prove <laughs> to prove that they never needed to bother me in the first place. So that's that's the kind of deal it is. 
<laughs> so I'm curious though. So is, is life there more relaxed? Like, I mean, are people, since everyone has to deal with a bureaucracy like that, is it just more laid back where people go in and they have to deal with it and go, whatever, I'll come back tomorrow? I think so. Yes. I think, I mean, you just get to the point where you know that you're, you're never going to get away with one visit. It's always going to be, it's always, it's always going to be a prolonged deal of some sort or other. And I think people just get, you just become accustomed to it. I don't know. Maybe, maybe they, maybe it undermines the French economy for all I know. Maybe it's a dreadful thing, but people seem to be, just seem to accept it. Now, do you still have your home in California as well? Yes, I do. Yes, although I'm, I must say I don't know, I don't know what what's going to become of it. But for the moment, I do. Yes, and I'm going back there in May. What do you do for riding now, Ted? What sort of rides do you do? Well, I, um, the, the last time I rode anything was when I brought this um, this uh, MP3 down from England. Um, I, I rode it here from from England uh, in August of last year, and I haven't really been anywhere since. Well, I went round the hill, but I, I haven't even got insurance, or, or so I can't get insurance until it's until it's got French plates on it. Right, of course. So I'm, I'm not riding. I'm not riding at the moment, but um, I will when the summer comes. And uh, there's another bike sitting in Germany that I'm hoping I might get here, which would be a more more of a real bike. Um, but I, I'm, I'm not really, really quite sure yet how that's going to work out. You know, the thing is, when you're 85 or six, you're sitting every 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 year. I get on the bike and I think, well, I wonder whether this is the year when I have to stop, because you know, I, I, presumably at some point or other, <laughs> I'm going to feel that that it, maybe I shouldn't go on doing this. And, and, and every year I, I wonder. So far, it all it feels fine. Um, so I'm, I'm not making any promises or any prognostications at all. I'm just going to see how it goes. Your house is set up and ready to go now. You, you posted that on your website and you've got your, your plaque up, um, which yeah. gave, makes it all official. So how does this work now? How does a, a writer or a rider come and approach you to, to get in there and, and use your space? Well, I, th- theoretically, it's supposed to be for Jupiter's travelers, that is to say, people who've signed on to the foundation and whom, we, whom we've accepted as being, um, you know, worthwhile, jolly good chaps doing useful things. Um, but frankly, I'm open to anybody who's got a, a good book in at the back of their minds or a, a, a good project of some sort, could be a film, could be artwork, could be anything. And, and really, I think it's just going to have to be on a personal basis if they if they want to get in touch with me, they can get at me through the website. It's very easy, um, or through the foundation, I suppose. And uh, and we'll just have to get to know each other and see see if it's okay. I mean, I'm really available. I've, I've got space. I'd like to see people come. Um, it's a it's a bit of a, a gamble for everybody, you know, for them and for me. And uh, we just have to see how it, uh, how it works out. I I think it. It's you know I've had a few people here. They everybody's loved it, so I I can't see that um, I'm going to be uh, pining for for visits. But we'll wait and see. But anybody who's listening and thinks they've got a good book to write and 
and that it might be something that I'd appreciate, they, they should get in touch. So is there a time limit for them to come and stay? Do they can stay for a few days? I mean, you know, it can be, the house has to be a fair size to be able to put up with a stranger in there for a long period of time. I have no idea. I I, you know, I'm, I'm waiting to find out. I think it's, like I say, it's something we have to work out off the cuff. Um, I've got bedrooms. Um, you know, I doubt that there'll be, I can't, I can't imagine having more than a couple of people here. I mean, I think that would be probably the limit, but, but there's certainly room for two people to be here. The, officially only one bedroom, but there certainly are, is room for two. And uh, at a pinch, you know, for a short time, could even be more. So, so yeah, I've got, I've got the room. Um, I think whoever comes would have to be prepared to um, feed themselves and, and probably go around the corner to the bar or the cafe and so on to, to do that. I don't, think, I don't think I'm into cooking meals for everybody. Um, unless I feel like it, and I do like cooking, so I don't know. Why don't you come yourself and see what it's like? <laughs> so it's a good idea. I'm going to put that on the list. <laughs> Use you as a guinea pig, Jim. You can come run run your radio show from here. Do do you do um, do you do that? Do you do you wander around the country and do your show from different places? Well, you actually, yeah, that's what we do in the summertime. So we're we're leaving here in a couple of months. We rent a house uh, here in. in uh, in British Columbia for the winter time, which is our home. And yeah. um, come summertime, what we do is we go off and we adventure around, well, basically around Canada is what we've been doing. And that's what we'll be doing uh-huh. again this year. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, here's your European outpost if you want it. It's, it's a good idea. And, I, and I'm and i going to have to watch that I don't mention this to Elizabeth because she's going to jump right on it because she <laughs> loves going to England and she, she would absolutely love to go to France for a while. So uh, I'll have to keep that quiet for now. No, no, don't keep it quiet. (laughs) Send her her over. You don't have to come. (laughs) And she'll probably do that as well. So when they, with, as far as the, the writer's retreat, it's, it's a room, it's a place to set up for them. Uh, it's a place for them to sit and probably an excellent atmosphere for them to write in. And they certainly have you to turn to with your experience and, and maybe bounce ideas off you, et cetera. I, I assume you have internet available for them. Yes, of course. Yes. And is there a fee for it? Do they have to pay something to help maintain the house? I, th- I think I would expect them to pay a, a, a two or three euros a day or something just to take care of laundry and and, uh, and and electricity and stuff. It would be very, not much, I mean very little, very little. This, beginning, this is the beginning of something and we'll just have to see how it develops. Uh, the only thing that I haven't figured out, uh, well, there's a lot I haven't figured out, but an, an important thing I haven't figured out is what do I do if some guy turns up and I really hate his guts, I mean, I don't know what, what, what do I do? Well, that's, I what do? I, that's what I was saying about the house being so big that you could avoid somebody because we were just talking on our other show, Raw, there a couple of weeks back. And I remember the Ricks is saying, Brian and, and Shirley Ricks from Australia, they were saying their attitude is it's like a bucket of prawns. You keep it, you have somebody stay no longer than a bucket of prawns will stay good outside of the refrigerator. <laughs> so they're talking two or three days and they're gone. <laughs> well, that's that, that. That's really yeah. I mean, obviously, that's a different approach. This is just for people visiting, right? If people if people are just coming to have a good time and and they come for a few days, and if you don't like them, then they're gone. But then uh, you can tell them to go. But if people are coming to do a specific thing, I mean, to 
to write a book, you can't, you know, or even write a small part of a book. You can't do that in a couple of days. And, uh, and I have to be prepared for that. And so I'll, I'll need to form some kind of an opinion before, before people come. That's, uh, and that's going to be interesting. I mean, I talk to them as I'm talking to you. I presume I'll talk to them on the phone or Skype or something. And, uh, and I imagine we'll, we'll, we'll suss each other out. That's probably the only way I can think of doing it. Well, Ted, great to talk with you, and good luck with your writer's retreat, and we'll talk again. Please do, yeah, let's do that. Come here and let's do it here. Thanks very much. And that was Ted Simon, of course, from his new home and writer's retreat in Asperan, France. If you're working on a book, film, or similar artistic endeavor, and you're interested in staying with Ted at his writer's retreat, you can make contact with him through his website, www.jupitalia.com. And of course, that link and some more information about it is in our show notes. IMS Products has new foot pegs designed specifically for adventure riders. The ADV-1 and ADV-2 series pegs have been tested by club adventure riders as well as IMS owner Scott Wright, an X-Racer himself. IMS ADV foot pegs are a watershed design. They're made of 17-4 cast certified stainless steel and they're made in the U.S. And let's face it, I mean, adventure bikes are getting heavier and bigger in a lot of cases. And even a lightweight bike becomes more difficult to handle after it's been loaded up for a trip. You know, leaning the bike over, pivoting from turn to turn. It's all incredibly enhanced with larger foot pegs. And IMS has a foot peg that is designed for your bike and your riding style. See what they've got. Drop by their website, www.imsproducts.com. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Ride. Radio. If you're a regular listener to Adventure Rider Radio, you probably already get that our view of the perfect adventure motorcycle is whatever bike you want. I mean, if you feel comfortable riding the bike in the type of terrain and conditions you expect on your trip, then it's probably the bike for you. There are the common bikes, of course, that we hear about all the time, the KLRs, the BMWs, the V-Stroms, the, the list goes on and on. But the bikes that you don't hear about are bikes like the KTM 500EXC. The 500EXC is a high-performance, high-maintenance bike that is probably better suited to trail running than long-distance traveling. But Aaron Steinman from New Zealand is here today to once again prove that if you love the bike, it's likely to be a good choice for your adventure, even if you have to change the oil every few days. Uh, my name's Aaron Steinman, uh, originally from uh, Tauranga, New Zealand, uh, born and raised in New Zealand. And then I moved over to Portland, uh, Oregon via doing the big OE, as we call it in New Zealand, through Europe and stuff when I was in my mid-twenties and uh, settled in Portland for quite a long time. And uh, about five, four or five years ago, I moved back to New Zealand and uh, spent some time back there. Aaron, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Jim. What did you say? You call it the big RE, was it? Is that what you said? Uh, the big OE. OE. It's OE, the Overseas Experience. Oh, and, I see. Uh, that, that's kind of like the, the thing most Kiwis will do. They'll um, finish their university or their trade and then spend a couple of years traveling overseas and 
come back home to settle down. And uh, I did the same thing, but I, it took me probably 20 years to get back home. But, but you're not home right now, though. No, no. I uh, decided to move back to Portland um, probably about a year or so ago. And uh, I, I had it in mind I was going to come back. And then when, when that came up, I thought, well, what better way to do it than uh, ride a motorbike back instead of taking that 12-hour plane flight? You decided to ride your motorcycle, as you said, from New Zealand mm-hmm. um, to where you are now in Oregon. And you're, I assume you're, you're heading off from there as well very shortly. Um, you chose a KTM 500 EXC. Why? I get that question a lot. <laughs> um, for me, I thought if I pick a, say, let's say a BMW or anything, it would be easily done. I think um, everyone's done it. They're great bikes. Uh, but I wanted to do it something a little bit different. I've always been into uh, my dirt bikes, and uh, that seemed to me like a logical choice for me. I know it's a little bit uncomfortable for most people and, and not the right choice for them. But it's just a fun bike. I enjoy riding it. I, I like putting my leg over it in the morning and the power it's got. And uh, it wheel stands great. It's just all in all a fun bike for me. So, so I think this is really neat because we talk about this all the time on this show about how the, the perfect bike is the bike that you have and that you love. Because if you love the bike, you'll put up with whatever problems you happen to have with it or whatever special things that you have to do with the, the motorcycle in particular. And, and it doesn't matter. I mean, it's, it's transportation. But so to give people an idea, the KTM 500, because it's not something that most people would see as an adventure travel motorcycle, what makes the KTM 500 EXC different than the average uh, travel motorcycle? Uh, I would say it's a lot lighter than most adventure bikes. It only weighs about 111 kg. Um, I had to do a few things to it, but I didn't do a lot. I, I put a large tank on it, which is kind of the no-brainer to start with, um, and went with the 5.3-gallon, I think it's 20-litre tank. So that gave me a fuel range up to, if the wind was right, probably nearly 400 k, 350 to 400 k. Um, I put a seat concepts on it. Uh, the seat it comes out with is like a four by two. It's pretty pretty hard. It's made for motocross. <laughs> um, so those were the two majors. Uh, I was running tubes and it has rim locks, so I got the wheels balanced for that, just so it was a bit smoother sitting on 100k for a while. And that's about it. Uh, and a USB charger. I thought you got to have something to charge your phone. Um, you see, when I ask you that question, the first thing you go to is that it's lighter and you start running through, whereas the first thing that popped into my head was how many oil changes you have to do. The, the dis- distances could be measured in oil changes or the service intervals, et cetera. So that shows, you know, the love makes you focus on, on the great things about the bike. Yeah. Hey, look, the oil changes are there and you do them. And, and I had to do them a lot. Um, I was probably doing them about, on average, every 1,500K. Sometimes I'd squeeze it up to 2,000 K. Uh, that bike takes 1.5 liters, so I'd always carry two one-liter containers with me. And the thing about it is they're just very quick and easy to do on the bike. I can, I can roll in somewhere, um, which I normally did. I'd, I, if I saw a little garage on the side of the road somewhere and people working on bikes, I'd quite often just pull up and, uh, and do my oil change there and give them a minimal fee to take my oil away. So I can do that in 10 minutes, and it's just not a big deal to me to do. And honestly, it gives me 
excuse to talk to some other people and they always enjoy looking at the bike and seeing the bike as well. I'm glad you said the, it gives you an excuse to stop because with today's modern bikes, you know, we have these bikes that are incredibly reliable. They drive, you know, endlessly without needing service. They have large fuel tanks, a lot of them, or people go and get the larger fuel tanks. So you can blow right by everything and not stop and talk to anyone. Yet anyone who travels tells you that the experience is when really, like maybe it's a two-part experience. One part is the feeling of riding through these incredible areas, but a huge part of it is that stop time, that time where you're actually dealing with locals. Oh, it is. It is. It's really important. And and probably one of the the things that um, didn't help me is my lack of, of Spanish. So the communication was quite hard for me. But there's some things you can uh, communicate with through sign language or, or something. And, and a prime example is that uh, when I would stop and people were looking at my bike and I could easily just start rattling off the uh, countries I'd gone through. And then they'd look at my seat and I'd pat my seat and then I'd pat my bum and they could tell I was saying, yeah, it's a hard seat and my bum feels it. <laughs> and they'd always get a laugh out of it. They'd always just... Or even they would bring it up. They'd look at my seat, pat it, and then they'd look at my bum. <laughs> so it was quite funny. Well, you've done 14 countries so far, 28,000-plus kilometers in the four and a half months that you've been on the road with your bike. What's the plan? Uh, yeah, it's a, you know, daily I look at Google Maps, and I think most travelers do the same. It's just a habit you get into. Where am I going to be in the next day or two? And I, it's a hard habit to break. So sitting here... I've kept looking at Google Maps, and I think the next next progression, natural thing, would be to just carry on up to Alaska. So that's what I've decided to do, uh, let this weather settle in and fine up in the next month or two and just pack up and uh, head to the top and, and finish off the continent. Well, how long are you on the road for? To go up there? No, I mean in total. What's sort of your overall plan? Uh, that's a good question, and I don't have an overall plan. Um, that That decision to go up to Alaska has been in the back of my mind and I really just made it this weekend. So um, I've actually got a job interview to go to today, so I'm not sure why I'm doing that now. <laughs> in, in Oregon, you mean you got a job interview? <laughs> I, well, it's the second interview, yeah, so <laughs> I'm not sure um, how I'm going to break it to them, but we'll, we'll see how that goes. Maybe work for a little bit. Well, you've got to wait for a while. This is March still. I do. It'll be, it'll be a couple months out. I think I'd like to get up there about June. So, um, yeah, and, be, and before I did the uh, trip through South America, I actually did top to bottom in New Zealand on, on that bike as well, was just to kind of have a bit of a break in on it, which um, I did about 8,000K through New Zealand. So now the bike's got over 500 hours and 37,000K on it, and it really, I haven't done anything to it. There's been uh, no the major breakdowns with it. No, I've been very lucky. Uh, the two little things that went wrong were the seal for the countershaft sprocket. Uh, it started to leak. And one time I was a day away from Lima and it was just a little leak and uh, I got it taken care of there. And I needed some other work like tyres and I wanted the valves checked and everything. So I, I went to the KTM shop, they had the part there and, and it was an easy fix. And uh, the same thing happened to me in Colombia, uh, but that time it blew out pretty big. And I, I didn't really realize the roads were wet. And I thought, ah, oh, it's, it's a bit slick today. And then I pulled in to get gas and there was just oil all down my swing arm, all over the back tire. It's like, oh, no, because mm. I weren't in, you know, it's kind of out there. And, uh, and with a liter and a half, you don't have much oil in there. You don't, you don't. So I, I did. I went into sort of panic mode and quickly looked at the sight glass and it was just at the bottom. So I must have caught it in time. 
And uh, I, I always carry two litres of spirit oil. So I just topped it up and it was uh, about a three-hour ride to Bogota. And I rolled in there and found a KTM dealer. And once again, the dealers I went to, just amazing service. They took a bike off the rack, they put mine on, they had the part, they got me taken care of and out the door in a couple of hours. What do they think of you riding that bike for a, a travel bike? Most of them are pretty surprised when they look at the hours. Yeah. <laughs> and I think... And I think I get a lot of help that way. Um, yeah, they're, they're stoked. All of them are just stoked. They want to see how far it can go. Uh, same thing happened in Lima. They took bikes off their racks when when I rolled in, and they just worked on it all day for me and, and hardly charged me anything, really didn't, for the work they did. Um, also in Colombia, I went in Medellin, and no one spoke English. So I was having a bit of a time trying to talk to them about what I needed and what I didn't to have done to the bike because I wanted the valves checked there and a few other bits and pieces. And uh, they finally put me onto the owner on the phone and he spoke English and uh, he had a KTM 500. And when I told him what I was doing, he was just ecstatic and said, hey, look, I'll do whatever I can to help you. Put me back on the phone to the workers and I gave the phone back to them. And again, five minutes later, my bike's up on the rack and they're just one guy's off going getting the tire another guy's off doing something else. And yeah, again, they didn't hardly charge me anything for it. That's that's got a that's a huge advantage. I was just thinking now, if you're riding a bike that isn't expected to be doing what you're doing, you tend to get a lot of attention. You know, if it was an electric bike or a moped or something, or your 500 for people who know, um, you're going to get a lot more attention that way than if you rolled in with the same bike everybody else is riding. Yeah, you, it, it seemed to work out that way, and it, it did. Um, again, in Guatemala, I, I popped into the KTM dealer there. I just wanted to do an oil change, and I bought the oil and oil and stuff from them. And and normally, I would just ask if I can do it there, and they said, well, we don't need anyone in our workshop and stuff like that. I said, no, I, I understand that. That's fine. So I just thought I'll go away and do it somewhere else. Then the guy came out and looked at my bike and then went and said, hey, hang on here for a little while and went away, came back 10 minutes later and said, we're doing all the service for free. It's, it's done. So so I, I can't say enough for the um, support I got through any of the KTM dealers I stopped in on, on the way. Did you find that you had to change oil because you're changing it so much in, in any remote spots where you just have to do it on the side of the road sort of thing or at a campsite? Uh, no, I, I really, I, I don't like dropping oil anywhere. So I, I would find somewhere, um, and they're everywhere. I mean, wherever you go, you'll see someone working on a bunch of old little scooters out of their little shop somewhere. So I always manage to find somewhere to do it. Um, one time I was at a hostel and I had to do it on the side of the road, but I had containers and, and managed to get rid of the oil anyway. Well, that's what I was going to ask you about was what you had to do for, for the oil or you, you have any sort of quick method that you've developed for, you know, changing the oil. So you, if, cause you obviously aren't going to carry a container with you to, to drain the oil into. Nah, no, I, I would do it wherever I could get rid of the oil. So it was always finding the spot mm. first and, and then just like I say, quite often I just give them a minimal fee of whatever they wanted. I mean, honestly, they probably just threw it away once they got it, but my conscience felt better about it anyway. Uh, but that'll probably change as you head north. As you're going up towards Alaska, you're not going to find that same sort of small yeah. shop that you can roll into. Yep, you're correct. You're correct. So I might just have to um, take another extra couple of liters and put that oil back in the containers I use. You went through the 14 countries, as I mentioned earlier. Let's talk about border crossings. What were your border crossings like? They were good. I... You know, I think patience, everyone will tell you, just patience is the key to that. Um, I heard a lot of horror stories before I left about them, uh, especially from people coming from Central America. Uh, I got the 
boat over to Panama and there was a group of people coming off that boat, the Starat. Um, a lot of people know about that. And uh, they just had horror stories about the Central American borders and how they got bribed here and there. And it really didn't happen for me a lot through Central. It was time consuming and sometimes awkward, but managed to get through them all okay. The only time I, I kind of had an issue was when I was leaving Bolivia into Peru and I was going through the Puno border and it was on a Sunday and I'd already gone through the Bolivian side of things and done the aduana and, and stamped out of there and I'd technically done the migration side of things for my passport going into Peru but then I got to the aduana office and once I got there the guy just looked at my documentation and just kept saying document no good, document no good. Well, again, my Spanish isn't very good, so all I can say is, well, document good for Chile, document good for Bolivia, document good for Argentina, document must be good for Peru. And he just nodded, you know, shook his head, nope, document no good, document no good. So this went off about 20 minutes, and there were two of them, and then one of them walked away, and then he looked at me, and he just gave me the rub the fingers, the money symbol, and said, I can make document good. Like, oh, okay, here we go. <laughs> so I flicked him a little bit of cash and all of a sudden he taps one on his computer and the documents were good again. <laughs> so how much cash did you have to give? Well, you know what? This is kind of embarrassing for me because I, I way overpaid him. I, I had a little folder with, there with some money in it and I opened it up and I could see he saw I had two 20 US dollar notes in there and I see he saw both of them. So I was like, okay, well, there were two guys. Maybe I'll just give him the $40 and he'll give 20 to his buddy and he'll take 20. So I did, I gave him the 40 and that's when he smiled. He goes, ah, oh, I make document good. He's tapping away on the computer and about 30 seconds later he looks at me and he gives me 20 back. So, I, <laughs> so we shook hands and had a bit of a smile and I'm like, well, at least he's kind of like an honest, dishonest official. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. He has yeah. his limits too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, at the end of the day, I was just thankful I had another option to get through, you know, because whether the documents were good or not, I don't know. I, I mean, they must have been good because they're good from then on out in every other country. But um, you, you did the cardinal sin, though. You opened up your wallet in front of them, right? Well, it wasn't my wallet. It was just a, a, I had that money in there just for that purpose. So it wasn't like all my money. I always have little t different spots for money. So you know, there was it was two twenty US dollar notes, and that was about it in that little pouch. What was the horror stories everybody's giving you? Why that? What are they telling you was was so difficult? Uh, they, you know, people saying oh, I had to give one of the guys my Leatherman before he would do something or it's that similar to me is where they would be asking for bribes and uh, just saying it was really time consuming. And I ran into a couple uh, that had just come through Central America and they were planning to go to Ushua and then head back up. I think they were from Idaho or something. And they were to the point they said, oh, we're just going to fly back. We just can't even be bothered with these borders anymore. So, it, which kind of struck me, you know, I thought going into this, this is just something you expect. And, um, you know, border days are never the funnest day because you never know what you're going to run into. But it's part of it. It's just part of the challenge, I think. And you go in there with knowing that's what your day is going to be like. Um, probably the hardest day on borders for me may have been Honduras. I decided to go through Honduras in a day. So, therefore, you have two borders to do in a day. And uh, with Honduras, they wanted triplicate photocopies of this and that and, and quite a few different things. So some people don't like this, but because I had two in a day, uh, there was one of the what you can call mosquitoes hanging around that know the system. And I talked to him and I, I paid him, I think, $10. And while I was getting standing in line, he was running around getting my photocopies done for me, getting the aduana sorted out. 
and it, it just sped it up so much. I got through that border in probably about an hour. And then I talked to a guy I traveled with um, for a couple of weeks. About a week later, he was coming through that border and said, he said it took him five hours because he didn't pay anyone. Do you think that's sort of um, like, a, you know, you're going against traveler's code or something by hiring somebody to help you? Is, is there some sort of stigma attached to that, do you feel? Yeah, you know, quite possibly. I, I, I don't like doing it because I, I think it enables them for the next time. Um, but on the other hand, though, isn't it like, you know, you're getting a local connection there and for next to nothing. I mean, really, for $10 is, is nothing, uh, you know, for a traveler, really, in the big scheme of things. And it, and it gives that local connection, somebody who's going to help you through all the hoops. Uh, I mean, you know, from, from a lot of different perspectives, it would be the wise thing to do. Exactly. And, then, and people are in two minds about it. So for me, I would rather not do it and I'd rather work out the system myself, which I normally did on every other border. But again, I knew I had two borders to do that day and I had to drive across Honduras and I wanted to get somewhere before dark in El Salvador. So, like you say, for the sake of me spending $10 for that peace of mind, it, it was worth it for me. And I think I, at the other end, going into El Salvador, the Iduana is a K away from the border. It's down a road. It's a little bit hard to find. So uh, I paid a guy, I think, $5 on that end, and he actually just jumped in a tuk-tuk in front of me and showed me where the Edwana was, started my paperwork, and I got through there really, really quick as well. Um, so for that one day, it worked for me, and I did it. What's your approach to a border? You said borders aren't necessarily your, your favorite day. What do you do with it? I get there as early as I can to start with. I think that's the big key to give yourself a whole day, and, and then just be patient. Basically, they have their system and you just got to go through their system and, and do the right things and you'll get through. And you're traveling by yourself, so you have to leave your bike there. How do you handle that? Uh, it's usually fairly well within sight. I've never been too concerned about it. Um, a couple times someone would come up and sort of mention that they could look after my bike if, they, if I paid them money. And then I sort of look at them and go, well, if something happens to my bike, you're the first person I'm going to come and see. <laughs> So most of the time, that it, it, I felt like it was pretty okay. Uh, a couple of the borders I did travel through uh, with people I'd met along the way. So one of us could stand by the bikes while the other person went in and um, sorted stuff out. But yeah, normally you can see your bike at most of the borders when you're doing it. You said you took the, the stall route to go around the Darien Gap. What was that like? It was great. It was great. Um, nice to have a few days well, quote, unquote, off, where you're not thinking about where I'm going to be tonight or the next night. You're not having to worry about being on the road, looking at Google Maps consistently. You don't have your cell phone or your Wi-Fi or anything. So it was just a nice, relaxing sail. And uh, it's the first time I've been out on boats a lot, but I've never slept out on boats for a couple nights out there. So it was a really great experience. And I, I highly recommend that way over just flying your bike through um, from Panama to Colombia. I think it's, it just adds to the trip and adventure. Because of the experience, not so much the, the cost. Yeah. Uh, you know, our trip was a day shorter than they normally do uh, for whatever reason. So we had two nights and three days. Uh, and the cost, I believe it was 850 for me. Mm. So the, st the, the stall rat is a, is, um, it's a volunteer thing, isn't it? Uh, it's around as a non-profit, yeah. I believe. Yeah, and yeah. he's done it for a long time. So I kind of got lucky on it because I really didn't think I'd be up uh, in Cartagena 
at that time, I thought he was going to be done for the season. I got the last sailing for the year, and I just I just got that within a few days, really. I was in Medellin, and uh, I was at that stage traveling with another guy that I'd met, and he looked at me one night and he goes, hey, you know that Starrat's got one last sailing in seven days? And I thought, well, I'm, I'm there. So the next morning packed up and, and raced and caught it because um, I really didn't think I'd be at the top of Columbia by November. I thought it'd be more like December and I knew he wasn't sailing then, so I hadn't really looked into it. So you just showed up and got a spot on it because don't you normally have to book in advance? Well, I got I emailed him that, that next day and told him I'm on my way, so he knew I was coming. Um, but the thing was, I was traveling really the opposite direction to everyone. So when I got on his boat, there were only three bikes heading north. Well, when we got to Panama, he had 19 bikes getting on the boat to come south. So 19. everyone, 19. And then before we loaded, um, we had to go give him our passports and paperwork. There was, I believe, about 16 or 17 boats getting off from Panama as well. So it's, it was just that time of year where everyone was starting to head south and, and not as many people heading north. You also had a, um, a bit of a, a luggage mishap. I did. I did. Which is, is more than a mishap. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to give that very light at the start <laughs> there. But when I read it, I sort of had a chuckle because I can picture this because I've ridden probably like most of us behind somebody whose luggage is streaming out of their bike as they go. Yeah, that's a benefit of traveling with someone else to let you know, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's, yeah. it's a benefit of being in front though only. Yeah, that, yeah, good point. Good point. I've had the same where I've turned up at a camping spot and my friend said, oh, I had a water bottle and a tomahawk and I can't find either of them now. And I'm like, great, I followed you the whole way. <laughs> but yeah, unfortunately, it couldn't have happened in a worse spot or time for me either. I was going from St. Pedro de Atacama to uni uh, and it's through the route. Ruta Las Lagunas, which a lot of people probably know, it's about 400k and it's all off-road. It's gravel and then no road at all that you go through past the lagunas at so most people will do it in two or three days and camp out overnight you're up in the alta plano so it gets it's pretty cold up there above four thousand meters and i don't know if it was just one of those days or what because i i knew it was going to be a, a pretty full couple of days but i turned up at the migrations office to start with and had to queue up for about 20 minutes and this was on the bolivian side and the guy looked at my passport and he said, oh, no stamp. The chili didn't stamp you out, so we can't let you in. And I was like, oh, because it was about 45 minutes back to the other place to, to get my stamp. So I was already thinking, oh, no, I'm behind the eight ball. I was going to have to go back 45 minutes and then turn around and get a stamp. And I started writing back. And after about a minute, I was thinking, you know what? I know that he stamped it. I'm pretty sure he, he stamped it. So I pulled, so I pulled over and I got my passport out. And went through the passport and I finally found the stamp. And I was like, well, he just overlooked it. So I was sort of running late to start with. And I got that taken care of. And the Edwana office from that migration is about 50K of gravel road to get to. And I had an extra 10 litres of gas on my bike. It was packed a little bit different than normal. But I didn't sit a lot and I didn't stop because I was in a hurry. I stood the whole way, just sort of head down. And then when I got to the Edwana office, I got off my bike and I looked at my roll bag. I had a 30-liter roll bag on top of my um, giant Loop Coyote saddle bag, and the clip had broken. So I just looked at it, and it was nearly empty. And my sleeping bag was in there. My clothing was in there. Most of my stuff was in there. And because that had all emptied out, my tent had slipped onto the exhaust, and that had burnt through my tent the whole way. 
So now I'm sitting there at the Adwana going, well, this is great. I've got two nights, one or two nights of camping ahead of me, and I don't have a tent. My sleeping bag's got holes in us. You know, sorry, I don't have a sleeping bag. My tent has holes in it. So I decided just to try and push through. I, I rode back about 40K looking for everything, and I found a shoe and a padlock, and that was it. So I was pretty happy about the shoe because I only had one pair of shoes. So I'm like, well, at least I've got my pair of shoes back. So I, I decided just to try and do it in a day. And, and that's what I did. It ended up to be probably the longest day of my trip, I, which was a shame because it's a really beautiful area and I'd be riding along and all of a sudden I'd see these big lagoonas with thousands of pink flamingos that you'd like to stop and take pictures and relax. And i just look at them and go, yep, flamingo's good, head down and carry on <laughs> and, and just keep going. So um, what did you learn about the bag thing? Was there, is there a method you use now that will prevent that from happening again? Well, the, the plastic clip on it just broke. I mean, there's nothing you can really do. Mm. I think I, I learned not to buy that brand of bag again. Like you, you, it's the one where you roll it up, you, you roll the top down, and then you put the, yeah. the two buckles, plastic buckles together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, I think it was just unlucky. And I talked to someone else on later on on the trip, and they had a similar bag, and they said their clip on their one broke as well. So I don't know if it was just a, a faulty clip or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's easy to easy to break those too. Anytime you leave your bag on the ground or anything, all it takes for you to step on it, they just crunch immediately. Yeah. Yeah, you're exactly right. And who knows, maybe that's that's what I'd done earlier on in the day that morning without noticing it and, and clipped it on. You spent some time in, in Baja, Mexico as well? I did, yes. What was that like? Baja was great for my bike. That's where having a bike like mine comes into its own. Those, just some of the roads down there are super fun, um, and that bike's just made for it. So there were almost times where... I did a section of road and then wanted to turn around and go, okay, now I know there's nothing on the other side of this roller and I know that corner's good and that, just so I can go do it again. And what are you doing when you're, when you're traveling along? Like as you're going from one place to another, are you looking it up in advance? Do you have the, your places booked or do you just sort of wing it and show up? I, I winged it. Yeah, I, I was only about organizing about two days ahead of me. Seriously, it, it, it wasn't much. I kind of, when I left, I had a game plan of, okay, I'm going to, get over the Andes into Mendoza, I'll go up the route of 40 to Salta, and then that was about it. And, and that's all I had gone organized. And I actually got really lucky in the fact I met this German guy online when I was trying to work out how to do the Darien Gap earlier on, and he was about two weeks ahead of me doing a similar route. So we were messaging each other back and forth nearly daily um, once I got to up to the uh, Atacama. And he was just a wealth of knowledge. So he would say, hey, where are you going today? I'm like, well, I'm going to head over from Bolivia to Puno or what have you. And he'd go, oh, you've got to do this road or you do that road. This is a famous road. So he, he kind of done all the legwork for me. So every few days I'd go, hey, Moritz, where, I'm here now. Where should I go from here? Oh, do this, do this. So um, it worked out really well for me. And uh, just shows you how helpful people can be in the sport as well. Just everyone has each other's back and, and they're there to help and share their knowledge, which is really great. And from here, it's an open-ended trip. You don't know how long you're going to be. You don't have any deadlines at all. No, I mean, money's a deadline. That's always going to be a deadline. But um, When you run out, you're going to have to go home. Yeah, when I run out, I'm going to have to get serious about life and stuff like that. But, but do, you have a, do you have a contingency plan? Like a lot of people will say, or some people will say, they've got a, a flight back. They've basically got an, enough money for a flight back. And when they get to that point, that's what they do. They go home and sort of start again. Is that what you're doing or do you? is it even more open-ended than that? No, I think it's more open-ended than that. There's one thing I didn't really want to do on my trip and that was think about money. 
I, I wanted a holiday for money as well. So when I left New Zealand, I knew how much money I had. I knew what my budget was per day and I knew how many months I could live on that. So for the first, I would say three months, I checked my bank balance two times and that was it. I, I didn't want to be there every day worrying about the money. I mean, I, I knew that my accommodation cost was going to be maybe 20 to 25 a night. If I can find it for 10 in a dorm, I'm going to do that. Um, and that's the way I go. And this was the amount of money I had for food and my gas was always going to be about that much a day. So, yeah, I, I think it's a good thing not to have to stress about the money side and, and not worry about it. I knew it would be tight once I got up to um, Portland, but you can't change that. I was just going to worry about that when I got to Portland. But for as far as my trip went, I just I really didn't want to think too much about it. What was your daily budget going through South America? Uh, for me, it was about 70 US a day. So I kind of banked on 20 accommodation, 20, like 15 maybe for food, 20 for food, same for gas. It was a very loose budget. Um, and I pretty much stuck to that. There were times I found accommodation for $7 and for $10. So it made up for the odd time that I couldn't find anywhere. And I got in somewhere late and I might have to spend 25, which I didn't like to do. Um, and same for the food. I think the the thing that you can start spending your money on if you want to is is if you go out drinking or stuff like that. So that's sort of an added expense. And then and tires and, and maintenance. But I got very lucky on my bike being really reliable, not having any major motor work that all I really had to do was tires. I actually got through that whole trip on uh, a set of chain and sprockets as well, which is pretty amazing. Mm. Yeah, twenty eight thousand kilometers. Yeah, well, that's that's uh, that's pretty good. I guess you go through them faster than than other bikes would on your KTM. Yeah, you you probably do, and I have a little bit of fun on it as well. <laughs> so it's hard not to. It's hard not to when you're on that bike and you've got a nice gravel road ahead of you. You're like, the, yeah. I mean, you've, sometimes you sort of forget. You're like, okay, you pull your head in. You're in the middle of nowhere, and no one's around, and this isn't a good spot to crash. But you, you don't always think like that. Sometimes it's just like, man, this is get into it. It's fun. Yeah. What's your daily budget or do you have one now as you head to Alaska? Because that's going to change dramatically, I would assume. Yeah, it is. It is. You know, I've just I've just made the decision on this trip over the weekend, so I haven't got down to the nitty-gritty of it. But I know it's definitely going to be more expensive and accommodation is going to be the big thing. So I'm just going to camp as much as I can through there doing that. Um, and hopefully that will help. Gas isn't will probably be a little bit more expensive up there, I imagine. But yeah, I mean, fuel is so, not a huge concern for you. I mean, how much are you going through a day? That bike pretty much goes 20k to a litre is, is fairly much what it sticks on the whole time, 20, 22k a litre. So it's really depending on how, how many k's you want to do in a day. And honestly, that's probably one thing about that bike is you're not going to go and do 800k's in a day, 1,000k's in a day on it. You know, it's, it's not really going to be the most comfortable bike to do that. And that's not really what I want to do anyway. For me, I, I, if I do 300K in a day, 350K in a day, through South or Central America anyway, that seemed like a pretty good day. That can be five hours on the bike. And it, you don't, my goal was to never ride at night. So I always like to roll into somewhere and be set up and know where my accommodation is by three in the afternoon. And it gives me a couple of hours to just go walk around the city. After sitting on the bike all day, I like to just go and, and check the city out and get a feel for the area and the city. And if it feels safe, it's great, and which they nearly always did. And then I'd go home and hang out for an hour and then I'd come back out at night and go eat and walk around again for a couple of hours and you know, check it out at night. 
Well, Aaron, thank you very much, and you have a great ride to Alaska. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for your time. And I've been speaking with New Zealand's Aaron Steinman from his temporary home in Oregon. If you want to follow what Aaron's doing and see how his bike is doing, he's got a thread running on one of the forums. We're going to put a link to that in our show notes. So just drop by Radio and look at the show notes for this episode. Best Dress Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron B-Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. The crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves, so they know what you want when you're exploring the world. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system, and it's easy to switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. You've got to check out the buckles, the straps, the whole bit. www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much. Hey, if you want to help things out here at Adventure Rider Radio, we'd really appreciate it if you drop by our website and check out our donate button. On there, we've got a couple of different things to offer you. We've recently signed up for Patreon, which allows you to give monthly if you're into that. Hey, don't worry about it. If you don't want to, you can still listen for free. We're not going to charge you for the show, but uh, it is built on a model of advertising and donations to make the whole thing work, so we'd appreciate if you drop by and check it out and especially if you drop by and check out our new Patreon page there's a, a link to that on our website www.adventureriderradio.com and uh, just click on the donate button my name is Jim Martin now it's time to get out there and ride your bike see you next week this is Spencer Conway from African Motorcycle Diaries and you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio Adventure Rider Radio